Chapter 13 of Some Problems of Philosophy A Beginning of an Introduction to Philosophy by William James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Novelty and Causation The Perceptual View. Most persons remain quite incredulous when they are told that the rational principle of causality has exploded our native belief in naive activity as something real and our assumption that genuinely new fact can be created by work done. Le sens de la viqui, s'indigne de tant de discourse, awakens in them and snaps its fingers at the critical view. The present writer has also just called the critical view an incomplete abstraction, but its functional laws and schematisms are splendidly useful, and its negations are true oftener than is commonly supposed we feel as if our will immediately moved our members and we ignore the brain cells whose activity that will must first arouse we think we cause the bell ring but we only close a contact and the battery in the cellar rings the bell we think a certain star's light is the cause of our now seeing it but ether waves are the cause and the star may have been extinguished long ago we call the draft the cause of our cold but without cooperant microbes the draft could do no harm mill says that causes must be unconditional antecedents and then that they must be close ones in nature's numerous successions so many links are hidden that we seldom know exactly which antecedent is unconditional or which is close often the cause which we name only fits some other cause for producing the phenomenon and things as mill says are frequently then most active when we assume them to be acted upon this vast amount of error in our instinctive perceptions of causal activity encourages the conceptualist view a step farther and we suspect that to suppose causal activity anywhere may be a blunder and that only consecutions and juxtapositions can be real such sweeping skepticism is however quite uncalled for other parts of experience expose us to error yet we do not say that in them there is no truth we see trains moving at stations when they are really standing still or falsely we feel ourselves to be moving when we are giddy without such errors leading us to deny that motion anywhere exists it exists elsewhere and the problem is to place it rightly it is the same with all other illusions of sense there is doubtless somewhere an original perceptual experience of the kind of thing we mean by causation and that kind of thing we locate in various other places rightly or wrongly as the case may be where now is the typical experience originally got evidently it is got in our own personal activity situations in all of these what we feel is that a previous field of consciousness containing in the midst of its complexity the idea of a result develops gradually into another field in which that result either appears as accomplished or else is prevented by obstacles against which we still feel ourselves to press. As I now write, I am in one of these activity situations. I strive after words, which I only half prefigure, but which, when they have come, must satisfactorily complete the nascent sense I have of what they ought to be the words are to run out of my pen which i find that my hand actuates so obediently to desire that i am hardly conscious either of resistance or of effort some of these words come wrong and then i do feel a resistance 
not muscular, but mental, which instigates a new installment of my activity, accompanied by a more or less feeling of exertion. If the resistance were to my muscles, the exertion would contain an element of strain or squeeze which is less present where the resistance is only mental. If it proves considerable in either kind, I may leave off my trying to overcome it. Or, on the other hand, I may sustain my effort till I have succeeded in my aim. It seems to me that in such a continuously developing experiential series, our concrete perception of causality is found in operation. If the word have any meaning at all, it must mean what there we live through. What efficacy and activity are known as is what these appear. The experiencer of such a situation feels the push, the obstacle, the will, the strain, the triumph, or the passive giving up, just as he feels the time, the space, the swiftness of intensity, the movement, the weight, and color, the pain and pleasure, the complexity, or whatever remaining characters the situation may involve. He goes through all that can ever be imagined where activity is supposed. The word activity has no content save these experiences of process, obstruction, striving, strain, or release, ultimate qualia, as they are of the life given us to be known. No matter what efficacies there may really be in this extraordinary universe, it is impossible to conceive of any one of them being either lived through or authentically known otherwise than in this dramatic shape of something sustaining a felt purpose against felt obstacles and overcoming or being overcome. What sustaining means here is clear to anyone who has lived through the experience, but to no one else. Just as loud, red, sweet means something only to beings with ears, eyes, and tongues. The percipi in these originals of experience is the essay. The curtain is the picture. If there is anything hiding in the background, it ought not to be called causal agency, but should get itself another name. The way in which we feel that our successive fields continue each other in these cases is evidently what the orthodox doctrine means when it vaguely says that, in some way, the cause contains the effect. It contains it by proposing it as the end pursued. Since the desire of that end is the efficient cause, we see that in the total fact of personal activity final and efficient causes coalesce. Yet the effect is oftenest contained aliquo modo only, and seldom explicitly foreseen. The activity sets up more effects than it proposes literally. The end is defined beforehand in most cases only as a general direction, along which all sorts of novelties and surprises lie in wait. These words I write even now surprise me, yet I adopt them as effects of my scriptorial causality. Their being contained means only their harmony and continuity with my general aim. They fill the bill, and I accept them, but the exact shape of them seems determined by something outside of my explicit will. If we look at the general mass of things in the midst of which the life of men is passed, and ask how came they here, the only broad answer is that man's desires preceded and produced them. If not all sufficient causes, desire and will were, at any rate, what John Mill calls unconditional causes, indispensable causes, namely, without which the effects could not have come at all. 
Human causal activity is the only known unconditional antecedent of the works of civilization. So we find, as Edward Carpenter says, something like a law of nature, the law that a movement from feeling to thought, and thence to action, from the world of dreams to the world of things, is everywhere going on. Since at each phase of this movement novelties turn up, we may fairly ask, with Carpenter, whether we are not here witnessing in our own personal experience what is really the essential process of creation. Is not the world really growing in these activities of ours? And where we predicate activities elsewhere, have we a right to suppose aught different in kind from this? To some such vague vision we are brought by taking our perceptual experience of action at its face value, and following the analogies which it suggests. I say vague vision, for even if our desires be an unconditional causal factor in the only part of the universe where we are intimately acquainted with the way creative work is done, desire is anything but a close factor even there. The part of the world to which our desires lie closest is, by the consent of physiologists, the cortex of the brain. If they act causally, their first effect is there, and only through innumerable neural, muscular, and instrumental intermediaries is that last effect which they consciously aimed at brought to birth. Our trust in the face value of perception was apparently misleading. There is no such continuity between cause and effect, as in our activity experiences was made to appear. There is disruption, rather, and what we naively assume to be continuous is separated by causal successions of which perception is wholly unaware. The logical conclusion would seem to be that even if the kind of thing that causation is were revealed to us in our own activity, we should be mistaken on the very threshold if we suppose that the fact of it is there. In other words, we seem in this line of experience to start with an illusion of place. It is as if a baby were born at a kinetoscope show, and his first experiences were of the illusions of movement that reigned in the place. The nature of movement would indeed be revealed to him, but the real facts of movement he would have to seek outside. Even so, our will acts may reveal the nature of causation, but just where the facts of causation are located may be a further problem. Footnote. With this, cause and effect are in what is called a transitive relation. As more than more is more than less, so cause of cause is cause of effect. In a chain of causes, intermediaries can drop out and, logically at least, the relations still hold between the extreme terms, the wider causal span enveloping without altering the closer one. The consideration may provisionally mitigate the impression of falsehood, which psychophysical criticism finds in our consciousness of activity. The subject will come up later in more detail. In footnote. With this further problem, philosophy leaves off comparing conceptual with perceptual experience, and begins inquiring into physical and psychological facts. Perception has given us a positive idea of causal agency, but it remains to be ascertained whether what first appears as such is really such, whether aught else is really such, or finally, whether nothing really such exists. Since with this we are led immediately into the mind-brain relation, and since that is such a complicated topic, we had better interrupt our study of causation provisionally at the present point, 
meaning to complete it when the problem of the mind's relation to the body comes up for review. Our outcome so far seems therefore to be only this, that the attempt to treat cause for conceptual purposes as separable link has failed historically and has led to the denial of efficient causation, and to the substitution for it of the bare descriptive notion of uniform sequence among events. Thus intellectualist philosophy once more has had to butcher our perceptual life in order to make it comprehensible. Meanwhile the concrete perceptual flux, taken just as it comes, offers in our own activity situations perfectly comprehensible instances of causal agency. The transitive causation in them does not, it is true, stick out as a separate piece of fact for conception to fix upon. Rather does a whole subsequent field grow continuously out of a whole antecedent field because it seems to yield new being of the nature called for, while the feeling of causality at work favors the entire concrete sequence as salt flavors the water in which it is dissolved. If we took these experiences as a type of what actual causation is, we would have to ascribe to cases of causation outside of our own life, to physical causes also, an inward experiential nature. In other words, we should have to espouse a so-called panpsychic philosophy. This complication, and the fact that hidden brain events appear to be closer effects than those which consciousness directly aims at, lead us to interrupt the subject here provisionally. Our main result up to this point has been the contrast between the perceptual and the intellectualist treatment of it. Footnote. Almost no philosopher has admitted that perception can give us relations immediately. Relations have invariably been called the work of thought, so cause must be a category. The result is well shown in such a treatment of the subject as Mr. Shadworth Hodgson's in his elaborate work, The Metaphysics of Experience. What we call conscious activity is not a consciousness of activity in the sense of an immediate perception of it. Try to perceive activity or effort immediately, and you will fail. You will find nothing there to perceive. As there is nothing there to conceive either, in the discreet manner which Mr. Hodgson desiderates, he has to conclude that causality, per se, why need it be per se, has no scientific or philosophic justification. All cases of common-sense causality resolve themselves on analysis into cases of post hoc cum illo, evenit istud. Hence we say that the search for causes is given up in science and philosophy, and replaced by the search for real conditions, i.e. phenomenal antecedents merely, and the laws of real conditioning. It must also be recognized that realities answering to the terms cause and causality per se are impossible and non-existent. The author whose discussion most resembles my own, apart from Bergson's, of which more later, is Professor James Ward in his Naturalism and Agnosticism. See the words activity and causality in the index. Consult also the chapter on mental activity in G. F. Stout's Analytic Psychology, Volume 1. William James' Pluralistic Universe, Appendix B, may also be consulted. Some authors seem to think that we do have an ideal conception of genuine activity, which none of our experiences, least of all personal ones, match. Hence, and not because activity is a spurious idea altogether, are all the activities we imagine false. Mr. F. H. Bradley seems to occupy some such position, but I am not sure. End footnote. 
End of chapter 13.